Section two of Chapter eighteen of A History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jen Raimundo. History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter eighteen, Section two. Three generations passed away, and still nothing indicated that the East India Company would ever become a great Asiatic potentate. The Mughal Empire, though undermined by internal causes of decay and tottering to its fall, still presented to distant nations the appearance of undiminished prosperity and vigor. Aurangzebe, who, in the same month in which Oliver Cromwell died, assumed the magnificent title of Conqueror of the World, continued to reign till Anne had been long on the English throne. He was the sovereign of a larger territory than had obeyed any of his predecessors. His name was great in the farthest regions of the West. Here he had been made by Dryden the hero of a tragedy which would alone suffice to show how little the English of that age knew about the vast empire which their grandchildren were to conquer and to govern. The poet's Mussulman princes make love in the style of Amadis, preach about the death of Socrates, and embellish their discourse with allusions to the mythological stories of Ovid. The Brahminical metempsychosis is represented as an article of the Mussulman creed, and the Mussulman sultanas burn themselves with their husbands after the Brahminical fashion. This drama, once rapturously applauded by crowded theatres, and known by heart to fine gentlemen and fine ladies, is now forgotten. But one noble passage still lives, and is repeated by thousands who know not whence it comes. Though nothing yet indicated the high political destiny of the East India Company, that body had a great sway in the city of London. The offices, which stood on a very small part of the ground which the present offices cover, had escaped the ravages of the fire. The India house of those days was a building of timber and plaster, rich with the quaint carving and lattice-work of the Elizabethan age. Above the windows was a painting which represented a fleet of merchantmen tossing on the waves. The whole edifice was surmounted by a colossal wooden seaman, who, from between two dolphins, looked down on the crowds of Leadenhall Street. In this abode, narrow and humble indeed when compared with the vast labyrinth of passages and chambers which now bears the same name, the company enjoyed, during the greater part of the reign of Charles the Second, a prosperity to which the history of trade scarcely furnishes any parallel, and which excited the wonder, the cupidity, and the envious animosity of the whole capital. Wealth and luxury were then rapidly increasing. The taste for the spices, the tissues, and the jewels of the East became stronger day by day. Tea, which at the time when Monk brought the army of Scotland to London, had been handed round to be stared at and just touched with the lips, as a great rarity from China, was, eight years later, a regular article of import, and was soon consumed in such quantities that financiers began to consider it as a subject for taxation. The progress which was making in the art of war had created an unprecedented demand for the ingredients of which gunpowder is compounded. It was calculated that all Europe would hardly produce in a year saltpetre enough for the siege of one town fortified on the principles of Vauban. But for the supplies from India, it was said, the English government would be unable to equip a fleet without digging up the cellars of London in order to collect the nitrous particles from the walls. Before the restoration, scarcely one ship from the Thames had ever visited the delta of the Ganges. But during the twenty-three years which followed the restoration, the value of the annual imports from that rich and populous district increased from eight thousand pounds to three hundred thousand. The gains of the body which had the exclusive possession of this fast-growing trade were almost incredible. The capital which had been actually paid up did not exceed three hundred and seventy thousand pounds, but the company could, without difficulty, borrow money at six per cent, 
and the borrowed money thrown into the trade produced it was rumoured thirty per cent the profits were such that in sixteen seventy six every proprietor received as a bonus a quantity of stock equal to that which he held on the capital thus doubled were paid during five years dividends amounting on an average to twenty per cent annually there had been a time when a hundred pounds of the stock could be purchased for sixty even in sixteen sixty four the price in the market was only seventy but in sixteen seventy seven the price had risen to two hundred and forty five in sixteen eighty one it was three hundred it subsequently rose to three hundred and sixty and it is said that some sales were effected at five hundred the enormous giants of the indian trade might perhaps have excited little murmuring if they had been distributed among numerous proprietors but while the value of the stock went on increasing the number of stockholders went on diminishing at the time when the prosperity of the company reached the highest point the management was entirely in the hands of a few merchants of enormous wealth a proprietor then had a vote for every five hundred pounds of stock that stood in his name it is asserted in the pamphlets of that age that five persons had a sixth part and fourteen persons a third part of the votes more than one fortunate speculator was said to derive an annual income of ten thousand pounds from the monopoly and one great man was pointed out on the royal exchange as having by judicious or lucky purchases of stock created in no long time an estate of twenty thousand a year this commercial grandee who in wealth and in the influence which attends wealth vied with the greatest nobles of his time was sir josiah child there were those who still remembered him an apprentice sweeping one of the counting-houses of the city but from a humble position his abilities had raised him rapidly to opulence power and fame at the time of the restoration he was highly considered in the mercantile world soon after that event he published his thoughts on the philosophy of trade his speculations were not always sound but they were the speculations of an ingenious and reflecting man into whatever errors he may occasionally have fallen as a theorist it is certain that as a practical man of business he had few equals almost as soon as he became a member of the committee which directed the affairs of the company his ascendancy was felt soon many of the most important posts both in leadenhall street and in the factories of bombay and bengal were filled by his kinsmen and creatures his riches though expended with ostentatious profusion continued to increase and multiply he obtained a baronetcy he purchased a stately seat at wanstead and there he laid out immense sums in excavating fish-ponds and in planting whole square miles of barren land with walnut-trees he married his daughter to the eldest son of the duke of beaufort and paid down with her a portion of fifty thousand pounds but this wonderful prosperity was not uninterrupted towards the close of the reign of charles the second the company began to be fiercely attacked from without and to be at the same time distracted by internal dissensions the profits of the indian trade were so tempting that private adventurers had often in defiance of the royal charter visited out ships for the eastern seas but the competition of these interlopers did not become really formidable till the year sixteen eighty the nation was then violently agitated by the dispute about the exclusion bill timid men were anticipating another civil war the two great parties newly named whigs and tories were fiercely contending in every county and town of england and the feud soon spread to every corner of the civilized world where englishmen were to be found the company was popularly considered as a whig body among the members of the directing committee were some of the most vehement exclusionists in the city indeed two of them sir samuel barnardiston and thomas papillon drew on themselves a severe persecution by their zeal against popery and arbitrary power child had been originally brought into the direction by these men he had long acted in concert with them and he was supposed to hold their political opinions 
he had during many years stood high in the esteem of the chiefs of the parliamentary opposition and had been especially obnoxious to the duke of york the interlopers therefore determined to affect the character of loyal men who were determined to stand by the throne against the insolent tribunes of the city they spread at all the factories in the east reports that england was in confusion that the sword had been drawn or would immediately be drawn and that the company was forward in the rebellion against the crown these rumours which in truth were not improbable easily found credit among people separated from london by what was then a voyage of twelve months some servants of the company who were in ill humour with their employers and others who were zealous royalists joined the private traders at bombay the garrison and the great body of the english inhabitants declared that they would no longer obey any body who did not obey the king they imprisoned the deputy governor and they proclaimed that they held the island for the crown at st helena there was a rising the insurgents took the name of king's men and displayed the royal standard they were not without difficulty put down and some of them were executed by martial law if the company had still been a whig company when the news of these commotions reached england it is probable that the government would have approved of the conduct of the mutineers and that the charter on which the monopoly depended would have had the fate which about the same time befell so many other charters but while the interlopers were at a distance of many thousands of miles making war on the company in the name of the king the company and the king had been reconciled when the oxford parliament had been dissolved when many signs indicated that a strong reaction in favour of prerogative was at hand when all the corporations which had incurred the royal displeasure were beginning to tremble for their franchises a rapid and complete revolution took place at the india house child who was then governor or in the modern phrase chairman separated himself from his old friends excluded them from the direction and negotiated a treaty of peace and of close alliance with the court it is not improbable that the near connection into which he had just entered with the great tory house of beaufort may have had something to do with his change in his politics papillon bernardistone and their adherents sold their stock their places in the committee were supplied by persons devoted to child and he was thenceforth the autocrat of the company the treasures of the company were absolutely at his disposal the most important papers of the company were kept not in the muniment room of the office in leadenhall street but in his desk at wanstead the boundless power which he exercised at the india house enabled him to become a favourite at whitehall and the favour which he enjoyed at whitehall confirmed his power at the india house a present of ten thousand guineas was graciously received from him by charles ten thousand more were accepted by james who readily consented to become a holder of stock all who could help or hurt at court ministers mistresses priests were kept in good humour by presents of shawls and silks birds nests and attar of roses bolses of diamonds and bags of guineas of what the dictator expended no account was asked by his colleagues and in truth he seems to have deserved the confidence which they reposed in him his bribes distributed with judicious prodigality speedily produced a large return just when the court became all-powerful in the state he became all-powerful at the court jeffreys pronounced a decision in favour of the monopoly and of the strongest acts which had been done in defence of the monopoly james ordered his seal to be put to a new charter which confirmed and extended all the privileges bestowed on the company by his predecessors all captains of indiamen received commissions from the crown and were permitted to hoist the royal ensigns john child brother of sir josiah and governor of bombay was created a baronet by the style of sir john child of surat he was declared general of all the english forces in the east and he was authorized to assume the title of excellency the company, on the other hand, distinguished itself among many servile corporations by obsequious homage to the throne, 
and set to all the merchants of the kingdom the example of readily and even eagerly paying those customs which james at the commencement of his reign exacted without the authority of parliament it seemed that the private trade would now be utterly crushed and that the monopoly protected by the whole strength of the royal prerogative would be more profitable than ever but unfortunately just at this moment a quarrel arose between the agents of the company in india and the mogul government where the fault lay is a question which was vehemently disputed at the time and which it is now impossible to decide the interlopers threw all the blame on the company the governor of bombay they affirmed had always been grasping and violent but his baronetcy and his military commission had completely turned his head the very natives who were employed about the factory had noticed the change and had muttered in their broken english that there must be some strange curse attending the word excellency for that ever since the chief of the strangers was called excellency everything had gone to ruin meanwhile it was said the brother in england had sanctioned all the unjust and impolitic acts of the brother in india till at length insolence and rapine disgraceful to the english nation and to the christian religion had roused the just resentment of the native authorities the company warmly recriminated the story told at the india house was that the quarrel was entirely the work of the interlopers who were now designated not only as interlopers but as traitors they had it was alleged by flattery by presents and by false accusations induced the viceroys of the mogul to oppress and persecute the body which in asia represented the english crown and indeed this charge seems not to have been altogether without foundation it is certain that one of the most pertinacious enemies of the childs went up to the court of aurangzebe took his station at the palace gate stopped the great king who was in the act of mounting on horseback and lifting a petition high in the air demanded justice in the name of the common god of christians and mussulmans whether aurangzebe paid much attention to the charges brought by infidel franks against each other may be doubted but it is certain that a complete rupture took place between his deputies and the servants of the company on the sea the ships of his subjects were seized by the english on land the english settlements were taken and plundered the trade was suspended and though great annual dividends were still paid in london they were no longer paid out of annual profits just at this conjuncture while every indiaman that arrived in the thames was bringing unwelcome news from the east all the politics of sir josiah were utterly confounded by the revolution he had flattered himself that he had secured the body of which he was the chief against the machinations of interlopers by uniting it closely with the strongest government that had existed within his memory that government had fallen and whatever had leaned on the ruined fabric began to totter the bribes had been thrown away the connections which had been the strength and boast of the corporation were now its weakness and its shame the king who had been one of its members was an exile the judge by whom all its most exorbitant pretensions had been pronounced legitimate was a prisoner all the old enemies of the company reinforced by those great whig merchants whom child had expelled from the direction demanded justice and vengeance from the whig house of commons which had just placed william and mary on the throne no voice was louder in accusation than that of papillon who had some years before been more zealous for the charter than any man in london the commons censured in severe terms the persons who had inflicted death by martial law at st helena and even resolved that some of those offenders should be excluded from the act of indemnity the great question how the trade with the east should for the future be carried on was referred to a committee the report was to have been made on the twenty seventh of january sixteen ninety but on that very day the parliament ceased to exist the first two sessions of the succeeding parliament were so short and so busy that little was said about india in either house but out of parliament all the arts both of controversy and of intrigue were employed on both sides almost as many pamphlets were published about the india trade as about the oaths 
the despot of leadenhall street was libelled in prose and verse wretched puns were made on his name he was compared to cromwell to the king of france to goliath of gath to the devil it was vehemently declared to be necessary that in any act which might be passed for the regulation of our traffic with the eastern seas sir josiah should be by name excluded from all trust End of section two. Recording by General Mundo.